The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Aftab Airfan. I met Aftab a couple of years ago at a Deep Democracy event she hosted. Deep Democracy is a facilitation method created by an MIT physicist and Jungian analyst named Arnie Mindell. Unlike classical democracy, which focuses on majority rule, deep democracy suggests that all the voices, states of awareness, and frameworks of reality are important, especially the marginal voices. Deep democracy says that we need to surface what's in the unconscious of a group in order to understand the complete process of the system. So that's all I'm going to say about that for now, but I'll direct you to some further resources at the end of the show. I connected with Aftab in an online call. She was at home in Vancouver, BC. So Aftab, what identities do you lead with? Mm, um, that one is a little complicated of <laughs> a question to begin with. Uh, professionally, I am the Director of Dialogue and Conflict Engagement at the University of British Columbia. Uh, and I also have um, about eight years in the consulting business where I've been doing facilitation and conflict resolution. Um, and uh, so I have a PhD and I did a lot of school and I come from an urban planning background to begin with and got really interested in the human side of planning and the, the social interactions in communities. And so th that is basically the focus of my work. Um, I'm also... Uh, I'm an Iranian-born bor Canadian. I'm mother of two kids. Um, I am. Uh, I, I live in a co-op housing in Vancouver, so I, I definitely live in in community, and all of that seems relevant to how I identify right now. Mm. So uh, you and I have <laughs> we've been through some stuff in uh, these contexts in which I've been learning from you about a process called deep democracy. It's, it's a facilitation style, and I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the process necessarily, but because of the very, I'm going to say tense and contentious uh, conversations and public dialogues we've been involved in, um, I've had a real bee in my bonnet about this notion of safety when people want to be in safe space. And, and of course, this comes up for me as a person who's um, convening groups and sort of spiritual development and personal development workshops or retreats or quests or whatever. And the use of the term safe space is like really starting to drive me crazy. So I want to dive into that a little bit because I'm a bit conflicted about it. And you're an expert in that. <laughs> the first thing I actually want to ask you is, can you share about times in your life when you have, when, if I, if I say you didn't feel safe, can you describe sometimes like you're saying you're Iranian born, like there, there perhaps there's, um, you know, social, political, or maybe there's been times when you're facilitating, when you were like, no, that, this is what I'm talking about when I say I don't feel safe, just so I can get a sense of what that word means for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting question. I, I think, um, I mean, I'm thinking of myself as being in the facilitator position, but also very often being part of a group, like a participant in a group, which is where I would be much more likely to feel unsafe or something like that. Um, I think the facilitator is actually kind of an interesting position because the way that I think about it is, um, uh, is that I'm not very attached to anything in a way. So I can, if I get attacked, it's an attack and that's fine. And I amplify it and I go with it and, and it becomes part of the dynamic and we work with the dynamic. So I actually feel in the position of facilitator 
quite safe in a way, but not in the sense of I, nobody is ever going to say anything mean to me or attack me or something. It's just like as, as it comes to me, I know that it is part of the dynamic um, and, uh, and actually making space for that will help us get into what it is that we are really talking about. Facilitators, by the way, do get attacked fairly often. And the more you're able to hold, um, hold space for other people, the more you're likely to get attacked. So that's, that's just kind of part of the thing. Um, where I've been in, in groups, I think there is this moment that comes up of, Mm. usually the feeling for me is like oh things are getting real uh, and either it's like something that I'm going to say that's kind of bubbling with me and I've been trying to think about how to say it or maybe I not say it or something or somebody else is about to say it and then almost like right before they say it I can feel it there's something really powerful that's about to come into the conversation that's going to hurt or that's going to feel um, uh, kind of unsettling or throw me off my balance or something. And I think that's what people are talking about when they talk about lack of safety in group conversations. Um, I don't really ever attach that word for it, to it. I mean, to me, it just feels like a very poignant moment. It has a lot of heat or, um, or energy or potential for explosion. But I guess, you know, and this is sort of, I think what you're asking with your question is, I did grow up in Iran during the war. So, so there's a sort of a comparison of, well, that was real lack of safety. You know, the, the house could be bombed at any time <laughs> as I was growing up. Um, so, and even in that, there's a kind of, there is a sort of a sanity in that. Uh, I didn't really feel traumatized by that lack of safety as a child because of what my parents did to to protect us um, and their own sanity. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I have never seen in a group people hitting each other or uh, drawing guns or something, you know, like there isn't, um, there isn't, physically anything happening in most of these conversations we are talking about that is actually physically unsafe. I think what people are talking about is, is this kind of psychological unsafety, which just means I'm going to be made wrong or attacked or I'll have to question my own identity or something. I think that's usually what it means. Mm -hmm. And so here's where I feel like I'm going to say something kind of uncomfortable because I identify as, you know, well, because I am a white um, woman and I'm settler and, and, but like, so I, so what I'm saying is I'm very privileged and I get really pissed off when I hear other white women in particular, because I often seem to have, um, women identified women gathering with me for some reason. I don't have a lot of men. Um, but, but when they insist on safe space and comfort and, and like whether we're a diverse group or not, I get so irritated with it. And I can't, I've been trying to work with that frustration and irritation as a person holding space of trying to just be like detached and neutral. And like, I know what they mean, mm-hmm. but I get irritated because it's a sign of privilege to me. And I kind of feel like then I want to call them out (laughs) because it's like there are people who are actually unsafe where what they're going to say is going to have like a real repercussion on them. And it could, you know, it may not necessarily be physical, but it it could, um, you know, in so many different ways, it could limit their options or their freedom. Right. And so when somebody says, I didn't feel safe with you, I want to smack them because I feel like what do you actually think is going to happen? Do you think I'm going to, you know, um, do you think I'm going to throw you out in the street? Do you think I'm going to slap you? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think I will actually smack you? Do you think that I'm going to yell at you? Do you think I'm going to, um, interrogate you? You know, like the thing is, if what you're saying is I'm worried, you're not going to agree with me and you'll do that publicly, then that's just, uncomfortable. That's just a self-esteem issue the way I see it. But I keep getting feedback that it's like, I, as a facilitator, need to be responsible for my power and my privilege and that. So 
I'm really curious what, what you, I mean, what have you been taught about creating safe spaces? Like, what would you consider best practices? Do you ever get pissed off <laughs> when somebody insists on safe space and you're like, um, hello, I'm the only person of color in this room and <laughs> kind of feel irritated? Like, does that happen? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I'm going to answer your question, but it might be in a roundabout way. Okay. Um, just the conversation really reminds me of uh, this book that recently came out. And the title of the book is um, Conflict is Not Abuse. Um, it's a, by, by a, a queer writer, Sarah Shulman, I think is her name. And so the whole concept of the book is, is similar to what you're saying of there might be kind of normative disagreement or let's call it conflict. Um, and there is a tendency in the North American population, and we all do this, but some more than others, to escalate that to abuse or threat or attack or like something way more extreme than what it actually is. And this is why we have, um, you know, black people getting shot by the police. They haven't actually done anything. There was maybe a tiny conflict and sometimes it was like literally nothing. But the, there's this perception of it was such a threat that I have to shoot this person, you know. And, and we also see it in kind of domestic violence cases quite a bit. Of There was just sort of some sort of uh, disagreement and it ended up with somebody getting hit or something, you know. So, so there's this tendency to overstate harm. Mm. And, um, and the author in this book makes a, a case for watching that and doing whatever we can to de-escalate uh, and bring it back from that kind of abuse to conflict. Because the thing is that when you're in a situation of thinking of it as abuse or threat or like this extreme, say even like triggers, in some ways people will talk about triggers, um, we fall into this position of victimhood and there's just way less available to us in terms of resources for problem solving and creating new things and creating new relationships. So the more we can stay with kind of healthy conflict and disagreement, the more our chances of actually working out something new and having a fresh um, approach. So, and I think what I understand about people who will do that escalation really quickly, it's, it's, it's two things usually. Either it is privilege, extreme privilege, and it's this kind of I'm not used to ever questioning my own identity. Um, and that really comes from, in some ways, not having, not having feedback mechanisms and information available to you. I mean, if you're walking the street as a white man, I mean, you, you just don't know that the rest of us get uh, called you know, cat called or, or approached by the police or, or looked at, like all of those things are just invisible to you. So you just don't know. And so people tend to be naive uh, about it. And, and in some ways we can talk about it as not having a lot of psychological rank or a lot of, um, um, you know, understanding of emotional life or something like that. So, so there's, that's one case. And the other case is when people have actually been traumatized and they have, they, they're carrying trauma with them that's unresolved and that, you know, every little thing might take them back into their trauma. Um, and so I think when I think about your situation of holding these groups, it could be either of those. Uh, and in a way we may not really know which one which one it is um the way that i have found it most helpful as a facilitator to work with that is to is to look at it in terms of the psychological rank of uh, so and psychological rank is a is a term for um Basically, if you have the psychological rank, it's like you can make sense of your own emotional life. Uh, um, you have probably been through a lot and have survived a lot and have worked through some things. And so you have a kind of strength uh, to be able to see yourself. And it usually really helps with getting feedback and all of that. It, 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 in um, developmental theory terms it's like you you have you've been able to make your own experience and your identity and your feelings object you know it's things that you have control over instead of them having control over you mm -hmm. um so it is a big thing to have psychological rank is a big thing and i think often the people who feel vulnerable in these ways uh in groups 
do not have a lot of psychological rank. And so the way that I look at it, it's almost like if I had any other kind of rank, you know, if I had social rank, it's like my, um, my responsibility as a person with social rank, let's say I'm a cis person, I'm working with trans people or non-binary people. Um, I have a certain kind of rank and that comes with certain kinds of responsibility. The biggest one of which I think is, is, patience um, and uh, and trying to cultivate a kind of understanding um, it doesn't mean that I can't call them on their bullshit uh, but I think coming from it in that perspective of I'm actually holding a rank that they don't have and I need to hold it with responsibility will affect how I make the intervention or how I call them out or, and sometimes I think it is literally like the tone of the voice or the words that happen to come out of my mouth because I don't plan it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I think the attitude does color the way that the intervention happens. And in a way, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about, is it right the way that I do it? Or is it like, can I defend it or, or something like that? I'm more concerned with, is it effective? You know, is it, um, it's a very pragmatic approach, but it's like, could they hear it? You know, and, and sometimes for they to, them to hear it, I need to yell. Sometimes for them to hear it, I need to whisper, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, it, it, it's in a way a complicated answer to say there isn't uh, one way of looking at it. But but I think having that understanding of that's where they are at and this is where it's coming from. And I need to like grow their ears, you know, that, that sort of expression of I need to help them hear something or understand something I find to be helpful to me as I facilitate groups. Okay, so that. That that notion of um, psychological rank and privilege. Oh, sorry. One second. I have to let the dog out. <laughs> She's murping. Okay. Uh, that I mean, that's a um, having psychological rank it, and being able to recognize that <clears throat> seems like a very advanced skill, you know, of observation and kind of reading between the lines or just you know, kind of working with the feedback of when I say this, how does it land? Um, I'd really love it. Is it okay if, I mean, obviously not using names or identifying markers, but can we talk about the, the, um, training that you did that I participated in, uh, where we were, I said, can we talk about that one that we did? Okay. So (laughs) let's set the stage. Weekend training in facilitation technique, a particular technique, and, uh, you know, small group, I can't remember how many we were, eight maybe, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, people who present or pass mostly as white, uh, except for you and one other person, Um, varying ages from female in her 20s to male in his 40s, let's say, Um, but, like, we're talking a pretty, like, mainstream group, and almost everyone working professionally in some facilitation capacity with marginalized groups, lots of them working with First Nations, except for the youngest woman and me. I was only there because I'm a fan of AFTAB, basically. (laughs) And was like, I want to learn. And the exercise was, okay, in order to learn this technique, we need a topic that we're going to work with. And I was like, ooh, let's do privilege because that's such a difficult one. And wouldn't it be great to do it in this, uh, what I kept saying, safe space? Because here we all are, you know, educated. We're, we're like, we're there for higher learning. We have some depth of experience, da, da, da. So I'm thinking we're all prepared for this, especially because a bunch of these folks are working with First Nations. Let's talk about reconciliation, I said, or let's talk about white privilege. Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to get into it. And I start getting pissed off because I'm like, uh, white privilege much? And really centering, in particular, kind of the white tears of the young woman who's like, I'm not ready for this. I I didn't know. Was there a reading list? I don't want to talk. Like, just totally fragile. You know, and the lack of resilience starts pissing me off because a bunch of these people actually have positions of real power 
and influence working with marginalized populations. And so this has like really been the, the crux of the issue. This is like my arresting emotional experience of, wow, like how do you then, how do you, I mean, the intersections there were pretty flat. Like, you know, there shouldn't have been so much conflict, I didn't think. It's like we all kind of seem to share a certain psychological rank, except then suddenly the cracks start to show. And we defaulted to people saying, well, this isn't a safe space for me, and da-da-da. And using that word, I, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. So can you kind of unpack how that was for you and you know, we moved through it. We eventually couldn't help it. We, we eventually talked about it at the end of day two. It was quite emotional. How did you sort of, um, I know you said you don't decide, but like what, what, what's the tack you take in that situation where you're just dealing clearly with a lot of, or what I felt was very clearly a lot of like upholding white supremacy and white comfort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because when I think about that weekend, uh, I mean, to me, it's like we had the privilege conversation. Like, that's my main story of it. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the weekend when we had the privilege conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though I think you're right, of a lot of the conversation was, are we going to have the conversation or not? Do you know, are we going to go there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, First of all, I'm not holding a kind of like being having been frustrated by it or something. I mean, it just kind of felt normal to me, so, which is probably to say that it's um, it's probably common what what happened in that session, especially when we people aren't signed up necessarily to go into that conversation. I, I, I there's there's a learning about it of I'm very explicit now when I when I convene dialogues. If that's the topic, like this is the topic, you know, come, come prepared. Don't come if you're not ready to do it. Um, but I, I think so. The the, the the kind of metaphor that that was very um, alive in that session is um, what you were bringing up and proposing, and at some points was. Uh, kind of supported by other people too. And we, you and I have had a conversation about, you need to also see that. <laughs> I think in minor ways, there was also like, yeah, maybe I might want to do that. Um, but it was definitely, it was kind of outside, I would say the comfort of the group. It wasn't, I don't think there was a, <clears throat> a situation of anything actually unsafe was going to happen. Somebody getting kicked out or yelled at even or anything, but but it was definitely outside the comfort of the group. And that often happens when we are on the edge of the waterline, that, that, that kind of metaphor of there's something underneath that is important. It's like one of those hot moments that I can feel coming up. Um, and what often happens in that situation is that people exhibit what's called edge behavior, which is a physiological um, response to um, becoming aware or becoming aware of something that is tricky or that is hot or something like that. And the physiological response usually is, I don't want to do it. So I will get a headache. I will feel, feel nauseous. I always have to go to the bathroom. You know, I get hungry. Like there's just uh, people start fidgeting in their seats. Like there's, there's, you can actually as a facilitator see it. And it comes also with a psychological response of, it's not safe. I don't want to do it. All of that. And so the way that I see it, the responsibility of the facilitator in this case um, is to the way my teacher talks about it. It's like you're going to kiss people over the edge. You're not going to push people over the edge. You're going to kiss people over the edge. Uh, because we have a lot of like throwing people over the edge and, we, and I could have done that or you could have done that potentially of just like forget it we are having this conversation you know? <laughs> we are going to handcuff you and dig you into it that could have happened um, and maybe in some cases that's the right thing to happen I just don't think that it's very often effective I mean there's just such an ability to shut down when that kind of thing ha is, is happening and so I think in the interest of the longer dialogue, like outside of this weekend that we need to be in, I like that strategy of we're going to kiss people over the edge, which is often this long process of 
we going to do it? Are we not going to do it? Not how are we going to make it 100% safe? Like This is like inherently a dangerous conversation, an unsafe conversation. We're going to say things that we haven't said before. Um, and anything that has the potential to be transformative is going to be dangerous. I mean, we're not going to do it. We're not going to change anything fundamentally with um, 100% kind of comfort and safety. It's just that's not going to happen. But what can we ag agree on? What are the agreements we can put in place to go into the conversation? And often, I think for a person like you, and I would say even though it might be invisible, you have a lot more psychological and spiritual rank than a lot of people who are in the room. I mean, this is the thing. It's like you can usually see it. It's not like skin color or something. Um, there's this feeling of it it's never it's not enough you know we haven't gone far enough we haven't really had the conversation from my perspective it's like that was the conversation we were we were ready to have in that group I mean I'm also a little disappointed by it maybe but it's not there's nothing fundamentally wrong about it it's just like that's where we were at as a group and it's kind of sucked for Carmen because she could go so much further <laughs> and was kind of held back. But, but what happened in that group feels right to me um, from this perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely something about, you know, for, for those of us who are wanting to explore the depth, um, finding the crowd that will explore the depth, but it doesn't come very readily you know I mean we are if you look at the, the state of the world right now it's like we are coming right back to the surface and and um, people separating and polarizing instead of getting into conversation so it's an unfortunate moment but I think that's the moment we are in mm. so how do you balance uh the need for you know, like you're saying, kiss people over the edge. So how do you balance the need for some nurture and some comforting while people are in the growth process with the need to be uncomfortable in order to learn and grow? Like, are there some things you've kind of gleaned over the years facilitating <laughs> that can kind of be signs and signals that it's like, when do you kiss? When do you push? Like, just from your own kind of intuitive sense, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, what do I do? Um, I think, so So I think there's something definitely about the framing, which which has to do with before you even enter the session of of being kind of upfront about what it is and, and, um, and having people come, you know, like attracting people who are more likely to go somewhere together. You're not gonna get it 100%, but I think you do make it a kind of a difference. Um, I also, I mean, my sort of philosophy with it is to um, let the majority sense of the group decide. So, you know, in the case of the session we were talking about, you were in a minority of like, you want to go to the depth, but mostly they want to stay at the very surface. So <laughs> where we're going to end up um, is going to be closer to the surface than the bottom of the ocean. You know, that that's just kind of, that's the reality of who, who is in the room. I think that we can do, um, we can do like some of that kissing people over the edge. Uh, what I'm finding is that it's, first of all, it's like, it's important when it comes, you know, and, and so often facilitators will ha will have, at the beginning of the meeting or in the beginning of a group coming together, this thing about safety rules or agreements or something, I don't do that at all. I mean, I, I, thought, I think that that actually, I mean, to, to me, it's sort of besides the point. Um, but also, at the beginning of the meeting, we don't know what we're going to get into. Like, the, the heat isn't actually really there. At the moment when there is heat, meaning the moment that we're about to go into the conflict, that is the right moment to talk about the agreements of how are we willing to go into it and, and not using the language of, you know, how could we make this hundred percent safe, but it's almost like, you know, there's something here and, and this is the kissing part. It's seductive. It's like, there's something here that has the potential to change the way we're going to be in relationship together, to change the way that we see this. There's potential for insight. 
it might, it will be hard. You know, it, it will be hard. And we are going to step into it. It seems like the majority of us are going to step into it. it. may not be the deep, deep end, but it's going to be this like middle end or whatever. What would it take for you to be able to come? You know, what could we agree on that would make it doable for you? Uh, and I think it's just interesting doing it at that moment, the things that people offer. And there's something in this method of deep democracy about like this commitment to respecting the wisdom of the, the, the minority voice and the, the people who are scared, there's like some kind of wisdom that they're actually holding. You know? um, it's the conservative impulse, but there's a, there's, a, there's a wisdom to that. And so what does that wisdom tell us about how we should have this conversation? Sometimes people will say, well, I, I want to be able to know that we're going to finish it before we leave. Great wisdom, like that's often <laughs> much better to come from a vulnerable participant than to come from me. Um, some other times people will say, well, I need to be able to come and go if I need to. If I need to take care of myself, I need to be able to leave the room. If that comes from a participant, I always respect that, even though I don't think, you know, I don't put it in as a rule myself. But it's a good strategy. It's like if I become vulnerable and this container is not right for me to be able to step out. Um, <clears throat> other times people will have... Um, the the example that I sometimes give is when I was working with Israeli and Palestinian students who would come together for dialogue for like the first time on a UBC campus. Um, I don't know if it was the first time, but it was just a very rare event. And they made four agreements before they went into their conflict, which was basically the Israeli-Palestinian <laughs> conflict. And their agreements was, the first one was, let's try to stay to the topic Mm -hmm. whatever that meant. The, se the second one was, let's brainstorm our questions for each other so that as we argue, we can actually speak to each other's curiosities. Mm -hmm. Interesting agreement. I had never, we had, I had never had that one before. The third one was that we, that we recognize the right to existence of the Israeli and Palestinian people and the right to existence of the state of Palestine, Palestine and Israel according to the 1976 boundaries. Like it was some very specific thing like that. And it took them 45 minutes to come up with that. I mean, it was, there was a lot of negotiating and it wasn't that at the end they're all like, yeah, this is like perfectly fine. But there was a sense of if this is what it's going to take to, to, to enable us to have the conversation, it's worth it. I can, I can agree to this so that we can have the conversation. And the last one that they came up with was, if we go past 8 p.m., we need to order pizza, and um, the options need to include vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free, halal, and kosher. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there was just something about by the time we got to that agreement, um, so much of the work had already been done. <laughs> relationship and then you know ordering pizza and then like people are calling their friends on their cell phone and saying I'm in a room with Jews and Arabs and we're having pizza like <laughs> um so you know there's like some kind of wisdom into this group to to these people that's uh I would never be able to even imagine but they're holding it. And, and actually the people who are most hesitant or afraid will be holding it. And so there's this kind of, you know, enticing them into the possibility of something, something interesting might happen. And what would it take for you to be able to go there? Now, what do we need to agree to? And almost trying to make it as concrete as possible of, I need to be able to step out, whatever. I may not like that you're going to step out, but if that's, if that's what it would take, I agree for us to go there. I mean, this is the thing. It's like this whole area is we are negotiating our comfort and safety and desires and, um, and hopes. I mean, it's, it's really a negotiation of all these impulses uh, with each other. And, and I think, you know, if we don't want to do violence, to each other we need to do that negotiation well and um it might not be you know the most expedient way to get to hope or something but you know that, that hope is also fragile you know that mm. we can have the in-depth conversation and everything can break apart and then for 20 years we have to repair that like it's just to me it's not worth it it's it's worth it to go slow 
that we can keep moving. Yeah. And I, I've seen you do that so many times and I really appreciate you kind of breaking down the process and making it visible because I, this is, it's very compelling to see you as a facilitator, just kind of launch into a topic, which I totally love. And it's kind of like, oh, we're not doing circling or we're not doing agreements. But then when you find that, you know, hot issue, the way you slow it down and the way it isn't like, well, let's all just take a vote. That's not the first thing you do. There's a sense of unity. Okay. So here's the, here's the sense of the group, but now I've seen you like, it's, it really feels like you just redistribute the power. You're like, here's the sense of the group. However, it's quite contingent on the comfort level of the people who feel the least amount of power. And you get to say, what your needs are and because you've kind of framed it and you've sold it as this like very you know there could be some real insight here and it has the power to actually change things but what would you need to go along if i mean it i've seen that be and i've experienced it myself being like oh no one's ever asked me <laughs> and so i don't know what do i need to feel comfortable enough to enter into this dialogue. And so seeing how you um, uh, almost, if not redistribute, but like offer some rank to someone else, whether whether it's like kind of like some something tangible or whether it's just the psychological um, shift of like, no, I'm, I'm offering you what you need right now because it matters. I mean, that's just a tremendous um, shift in, in the room and, and it does sometimes take a long time to find the place where we're like, okay, well, we all maybe you know, some of us aren't going to be happy sometimes and like happy other times. We're all going to though find that place where it's worth it for us to move forward. And, um, I've, I've seen that be very magical and I'm still trying to figure out what to do when you're a person of, of high psychological, or as you say, spiritual rank, recognizing that you've underestimated people's self-perception of their rank. Like they don't feel it. I might think it, <laughs> but they're not feeling it. And so they're feeling threatened and intimidated by me. And I need to like really be looking way harder than I thought, you know, and really um, become aware of the kind of privilege that is, um, you just simply cannot identify, you know. So I want to end um, with a bit of a nod to the first time uh, we worked together in that deep democracy process. It was a public dialogue uh, and it was entitled, um, Is Hope Bullshit? And I totally didn't want to go. And my husband, Ruben, you'd invited him and said, like, you guys should come. And I was like, I know exactly why she's inviting us, because we are the only people who actually are willing to or unwilling in that at that point um, say, yeah, I think it's bullshit for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and I was like, I don't need to go <laughs> stand in a room and be a target of a bunch of hopium and like bright, shiny, you know, people telling me it's all going to be better when like my intuition is saying, actually, it's going to get worse before that. And, and in the end, we went and I had one of the most profoundly transformative experiences for me personally, as I recognized the power of collective and you know public forms of grief and rage and what that's like to sort of express that publicly and how vulnerable that is but also galvanizing and empowering so you know the the last question on the numinous podcast for like 60 episodes was you know what do you consider perfect happiness but um in honor of the potent powers of grief and rage the new last question <laughs> For you, Aftab, I can't wait to hear it. Is uh, how do you process grief and rage? Hmm. You can cut out this very long pause if you want. <laughs> Interesting question. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean the 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 first very clear example that um, comes to my mind is is of an actual grieving process for a friend of mine who died by suicide uh, four years ago, just over four years ago, no, five years ago, <laughs> uh, in January. In fact, I think next week is the anniversary of it. And for probably two months or something, um, the community around her would get together every night and just hang out. And I mean, the first weeks, it was just like, basically we were kind of in tears the whole time, but also there was this kind of um, getting into conversations about her and then therefore conversations about us and what is important in my life and how am I making sense of where I'm going and how am I struggling with my, my depression that killed our friend? Like all of, all of that. Um, and so, there's something about the quality of that community that came together around this kind of profound personal grief. Um, and the fact that we stayed with it for so long and mainly because we had no idea what else to do. Um, there's something very potent about the feeling of community that came out of that. And I, I think, you know, after that episode, there's been like people who broke up and then had the community to rely on, or, you know, at least knew the rest of us to, to, um, to call on because there's all, there's so much grief with breaking up and, you know, you don't have the same rituals as death uh, for, for something like a breakup. And then there's like all the, the, uh, I'm thinking of the grief after the Trump election. And I mean, for days, like I couldn't look at media and social media. And I knew that there was a lot happening that I should be on top of, but I just wanted to talk to people, like just talk to friends. And I just called friends mostly in the U S like over and over again. And, um, and had long conversations. And we've also done a little bit of bringing that conversation into the sort of public forums that, that you're talking about. And so, yeah, the, I think the answer to the question of how do you do it is just like very slowly. And um, there's definitely part of it that's private, but I think to your point, I have found there's something very healing about doing it with other people. Um, and yeah, almost like we can find our shared humanity in that, like there's just such an amazing opportunity for finding something about our shared humanity in those, in those conversations. And what's your relationship with rage like? Mm -hmm. oh, I don't have any rage. I don't <laughs> rage. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I definitely need to rage more. Uh, I, uh, it's interesting. It is actually coming up sometimes as I'm facilitating. Like there's been a few times when I've just like kind of... Um, lost it on someone and first I felt like really awful about it and called my deep democracy mentor and was like this awful thing happened and I totally lost neutrality and like yelled at this person but often it's like very effective <laughs> and um and um and she was suggesting my mentor was suggesting that it is like I, I'm actually I'm finding access to like the rage within this dynamic that does need to come out that the other person can't say it to this other person but I can you know that it, it, like some ability to do that um, uh, and it actually I mean in some ways maybe it is I am channeling something but it also does feel like my rage like I definitely I don't know if there's like an imprint of that that I recognize and in myself. So I think that I'm, I'm learning, um, with rage and I'm, um, I mean, I did, I've done a lot of kind of activism, which is often based in the sort of rage, but, um, I've usually been on the peaceful side of 
the activist movement. Uh, so yeah, it is an interesting one. There's like definitely uh, an imprint of it that I'm getting more familiar with in myself. Um, and obviously it's, it's, it's powerful and we need it in our toolkit for transforming these situations. Um, but I'm, I think I'm like a novice with rage. <laughs> it's kind of cool to, to be exploring it. Wow. Well, it's always very cool to explore things, anything really with you. Thank you so much for having this conversation and unpacking some of the uncomfortable bits. Um, Aftab, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for doing this and for having me on. All right, today on the podcast, we're introducing a new segment called The Rubination. I'd like to welcome back to the show my wonderful husband, Ruben Anderson. Hello there. Hi. Ruben and I are going to spend a couple of minutes debriefing the conversation we just heard, and then Ruben's going to ruminate on some of the points a little further, hence the name of the segment, The Rubination. So, Ruben, you just heard the conversation I had with Aftab. What's staying with you? Uh, first of all, Aftab is so searingly smart mm-hmm. that I would just take any opportunity I could to be in the room with her doing her thing. Mm-hmm. So, when I think back on uh, the event we went to, which you talked about, the Is Hope Bullshit uh, weekend or day, uh, it's just amazing to see her do her stuff. So, I loved listening to the podcast. Um, Things that are sticking with me, there's several things that I thought were interesting, but I don't want to talk about. Um, The first was the book she mentioned, uh, Conflict is Not Abuse. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to read that. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, she also mentioned that uh, a lot of the conversation in her work is talking about having the conversation which is something that you and I have also talked about, uh, usually when we're having kind of a pointless fight on Facebook. So, for example, um, if you're arguing about white supremacy on Facebook, it seems like a lot of the time you, uh, you're spending your time discussing whether white supremacy is, is happening or is a thing or is a real, or is a, is a real part of the conversation. So you're or not... if the term white supremacy is appropriate <clears throat> for this particular example you're talking about. Like people right. like to get into the semantics and sort of drag out a lot of different things to prevent us having an actual conversation. Right, yeah. So instead of actually being like, oh, wow, that black person was just shot by the police, how are we going to address that? You're talking about whether white supremacy is a problem. Mm-hmm. which is uh, kind of bizarre. So I, that really resonated with me. Um, uh, something that really, st- <laughs> I also really noticed she talked about edge behavior mm-hmm. uh, and how when the conversation is getting um, uh, tense, you get a headache or you feel sick, you get diarrhea, whatever. And uh, I, <laughs> when you and I are fighting, of course. Uh, I fall asleep. You fall asleep. So it's <laughs> like, like mid-thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The conversation gets really important, and Carmen's like. <laughs> 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 it is like kind of narcoleptic, and I, but you know, I I've come to be able to identify that as like my mind goes into the concrete box. There's no windows or door, and everything it, it's a biological function. Everything mm-hmm. sl- shuts down, and so now recognizing that that's an edge behavior you stop trying to bang on my concrete box mm-hmm. you know we back up or do something else or yeah 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 so anyhow i thought that was <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing <laughs> that was funny it's it's sad because it's true yeah. um so then the trying to string together the i guess a lot of what i really found interesting in this is wasn't in the podcast it was the things that you and I have talked about and that we've tried to figure out in our life. So here we are, the first ever rubination, trying to figure out how to string Getting this together. personal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I didn't quite know how to put this, but I would say uh, a big part of our relationship progress, you know, a big part of my growth as a, as a man and as an adult Uh, And a lot of the work that we've done as we try to understand racism and sexism is this uh, idea that people's experience should be taken as true. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so, and I, I think that has a lot of resonance, especially for you, since that's kind of the a Quaker principle as well, is mm -hmm. that the, the notion is that you don't need intermediaries between you and God, mm -hmm. that you, your experience of the divine is, is in fact mm -hmm. your true experience of the divine. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think that then, you know, that premise unfolds when it's, um, you know, we should believe someone who is telling us they suffered sexual assault. It's like, okay, that is a true thing that happened to you. We're not going to be like, oh, well, were you asking for it? You know, did you create this problem yourself? Mm -hmm. It's like we... Well, and I can really relate to this also, even though, um, you know, within our relationship, uh, like sexism has, you know, being able to um, see how hard I, I used to have to work to get you to just stop arguing with what I was telling you. However, even as a, a, a woman, I have been told my words or attitude or or way of being is violent towards another woman and that really has been hard for me to unpack and figure out because i've done the same thing that you used to do which is like well what specifically did i say what did i and like trying to get people to like tell me specifically what was the behavior and so this is where uh the idea of psychological rank and spiritual rank has, I mean, it's, I've really had to sit with that for the better part of a year now <laughs> to really kind of unpack it, that it's, it's subtle and you can't see it and it doesn't necessarily matter what specific words I've used, but that the first place to start is that what they're telling me is their true experience and, and I need to hold that gently and carefully and reverently because that is my responsibility. They're telling me I have rank. And, and that, that's been really hard actually for me. So, uh, yeah. And, and the thing that I think, uh, the, the part that I can't quite figure out then how we move forward is that there's been a lot of discussion. You touched on it in this podcast, but, uh, you didn't really, you know, you fleshed out in other places, the idea of shame and whether shame is a useful tool, uh, or the idea of, um, uh, like we've talked a lot about whether it's okay to punch Nazis in the face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so people are saying, people are telling us that shame is not a useful tool. And we're not sure if we believe them. Well, this is where I think Aftab's question, is what I'm doing effective, is such a nuanced question. Because people would say, uh, for instance, well, you're fighting um, racism and shaming people is not effective. And it's like, wait a second, effective t for what? Mm -hmm. Am I shaming because I'm trying to stop racism or because I'm trying to set a social boundary or mm -hmm. I'm trying to... Um, I'm trying to express uh, protection for, you know, who am I addressing? That's really a, an important aspect of is it effective, which is the same for um, is punching Nazis effective. It's like, well, that depends. Uh, are you saying you're going to stop Nazism? No, that's obviously not effective for that. But are you saying, hey, marginalized person, I will put my body into the fray and on the line for you? Then that is a very effective Thing. So um, I, I don't want to talk too much about that because um, for anybody, I, because as soon as I say shame, it really agitates a lot of people. And I just want everyone to know there's going to be a, another Numinous podcast mini series. Maybe I'll put it in the next episode since we brought it up. Uh, and it's, uh, it's actually a conversation I had with Rachel Rice and Mary Beth Bonfiglio called Confronting Whiteness. That's, that's their uh, series, and we talk all about, um, is shame necessary? So we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, so I, I, I found that dynamic, I, or I found that tension really interesting and still present. And I think, if anything, I found Aftab very challenging to the sort of conclusions that you and I have come to, because she said things like, um, uh, you asked her how she processes grief and rage, and she says, slowly. But then she also said that she's lost her shit at people and she's yelled at them in workshops. You know, so it was very complex. But on the whole, I, I found her, her saying that people should be kissed over the edge. Oh, yeah. To be... Um, it's a very... It, it obviously sounds very slow. 
<laughs> and it does, delicate. but we've seen it in action, and in a way, it it moves quickly because uh, there she uses the that the art of seduction, not not in a pickup artist way. I mean, like she uses the word seduction, and we, I love that line where she says, "Anything we do that's transformative is going to be dangerous." Mm. And so there's this compelling point to be made uh, that that I think actually helps eliminate the, well, not eliminate, but it does help address the, are we going to have the conversation um, mm. aspect? I, d- I think it kind of like, it slows it down a little bit, but it also moves us all forward because if we can all decide there's something seductive that we're willing to at least figure out, what do we need to move forward? That we spend way less time arguing semantics, way less time just kind of in that heady, rational kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, and this is my huge takeaway from this conversation, because um, anybody I think who's done workshops, even like yoga classes or whatever, you go in and there's some kind of agreement about safe space in the beginning or like some kind of circle thing. There's these processes around that. But in deep democracy, you know, or at least the way we've seen AFTAB do it, it isn't done in the beginning. It's like, okay, we're just going to get into this. And at the moment of conflict is the time to establish agreements about how we move forward. And so that actually, you know, it's like tensions bubbling, tensions bubbling. And at the moment of conflict, if you press pause and say, okay, there's something compelling here. Let's, let's see what we need to go forward. That naturally slows down the process and allows the body to diffuse a bit of the tension and kind of like I kind of relax a little bit in like just take a few breaths um, so that has been a huge change in how I direct groups I basically go okay we're all jumping into the deep end and wait until some good resistance comes and then say all right how are we gonna move forward doing mm-hmm. this and um Yeah, I found it very, I mean, just effective, Mm -hmm. lack of another word. Yeah, it seems like you're you're shifting the you're shifting the baseline. Yeah, we go we go intense. I set I set the benchmark really high. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and then sort of then a small amount of safety feels very life saving. Yes. Whereas if you start with a position of like what do we need to be safe? And people are like, ooh, I need mint tea that's yeah, artisanally harvested. Yeah, and a small and... amount of discomfort feels life-threatening. Uh-huh. Ooh, I like what you've just done there. Okay, so <laughs> so was there anything else that uh, really stayed with you? Oh, yes, Carbon, there's lots oh, more. Oh, carry on. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so going back to this notion of we should, or, or we believe that we should accept people's statements of truth. So when people are saying, I don't feel safe, uh, and you're responding like, am I going to hit you? Am I going to shun you? Am I going to, you know, it's, it's like, well, they're saying they don't feel safe. Yeah. So then if we believe that, what might we conclude? And the thing that came to my mind is that I, I think we may be really un, underestimating the need to be a member of a group. Um, and I wonder, you know, humans are social creatures, and the thing about shame and ostracism and whatnot is the fear of being cast out of the group. But maybe we're really underestimating how badly we need that. Mm. Um, or maybe we're not recognizing that the need for that has changed, which makes a lot of sense to me because we live in a culture that isn't terribly community uh, how would you put it? We aren't we aren't We're not as intact as we used to be. Yeah we don't have as many daily engagements with community with a, or, or, you know, we don't wear clothing that signifies our membership. We don't sing mm-hmm. songs that signify our membership. We don't eat foods that signify yeah. our membership. We don't feel it in our bones that mm-hmm. we have, uh, that we're being held by some larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you imagine, uh, being an intact culture and let's say you are wearing some resplendently embroidered peasant garb, you know, and you've just all eaten a delicious meal of your favorite, you know, cultural foods. And then someone says something harsh to you. You can see by what you're wearing and what you're eating that you're still a member of that group. Mm. You know, like you're, you are held, you're wrapped in the fact that you're a member of that group. Whereas now, you know, when you're just going to a weekend workshop and someone says something a little harsh, it, I, I wonder 
if we do in fact feel less safe like if it feels easier to be cast out well and it's so interesting because uh you use the word peasant garb and i instantly (laughs) was like why peasant what the hell but of course it signifies rank Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, there's something in settler culture anyway, where we're pretty darn accustomed to rank <laughs> and it's way easier to know if you have garb mm-hmm. that tells you where you're at. Uh, but in this much less intact, much more flat, more individualistic culture that we live in in North America, you can't always pick up on the signals of rank and it comes through words and interaction and mm. demonstrations of power. And that, that I can see that being, you know, hugely intimidating. I, you know, I, I've been told my whole life that, uh, I'm really intimidating and, and I just hate it. You can hear in this entire (laughs) interview how uncomfortable and frustrated, um, I, I feel about that, but I've, I've definitely been doing acceptance work on, uh, needing to be more responsible with these kinds of invisible rank. Mm-hmm. What else have you got there, Ruben? Uh, following on that, the perhaps we should accept that people are feeling true fear, even in situations where we don't see why they should be feeling that. Uh, I was reminded of the power of feeling like an ass. Um, <laughs> and I, again, I, I just wonder if we're underestimating this. Yeah, I don't know. I it's very site specific mm-hmm. isn't it so it's possible that that, yeah. that is absolutely true um, and we need to wield that awareness in a very responsible way so and that brings me to the perhaps the wrapping up point or the wrapping up uh, whole new conversation uh, which I, I think aftab really unfolded that it is site specific and you kind of have to feel your way through it and it goes at the speed that it goes at Mm-hmm. And I think the frustration we feel um, is that we would like the problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's not a problem. It's a predicament. So That's it's, right. it's not... Let's clarify again. <clears throat> Problems have solutions. Predicaments have a response because there's no yeah. solution. <laughs> yeah, predicaments you just cope with. Yeah. So, you know, we we get frustrated on Facebook when we see white supremacy in action because what we would like is for black people to stop being shot by the police. Right. Or we would like First Nations people to stop uh, drinking dirty water. That's right. You know. So, and even, in fact, uh, have lands repatriated and sovereignty uh, restored, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which like most people are yeah. like, uh, like they yeah, just don't. Yeah. Under, they're not yeah. with us. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think we would like that to stop, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, what Aftab may be highlighting is that we're like we're not going to get our wish for that. That this only mm-hmm. happens at the speed that it happens at, mm-hmm. and so then what do we do? How do we? Uh, yeah. So where do you? If you could sum up, where where do you land on this safe space spaces uh, issue? Like, if you were to s- summarize in like ten words, <laughs> one sentence. Uh, I I land in total conflict because I do think that I, a few years ago I decided I was just going to try to spend more time being uncomfortable. And I usually mean that like I'm going to go outside without a jacket on, you know, and not worry about controlling my personal climate so much. Or I might actually go a little while and be hungry, mm-hmm. you know, and not feel like, oh, I need to ensure that I have a snack with me, mm-hmm. you know, or perhaps I'll leave the house without a hat in case it gets sunny or something, you know. So I, I decided to try to be uncomfortable more. Um, but I, so, so I, I believe that we should challenge people and we should be demanding uh, of people's kind of best effort. But on the other hand, I do also believe that we should really endeavor to listen to people uh, about what they're experiencing their truth to be. And and I guess I feel like there's a whole skill set that we're not being taught in schools about (laughs) how to really investigate your, your emotions and need for safety and inquire mm-hmm. of yourself and, and sort of a an honor to honestly inquiring of yourself mm-hmm. your need for safety right 
Well, that wasn't 10 words, but if I were to sum it up in 10 words, I'd say, I'm with you, love. <laughs> Ruben Anderson is not your 10-word man. No, no. But thanks for your thoughts, Ruben. You can find out more about AFTAB and her facilitation work at deepdemocracy.ca and also at her website, wholepicturethinking.com. And you can find the link to the book, uh, Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah Shulman, on my website in the show notes. And just before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to my listeners in Taiwan. Taiwan, thank you for listening. I, <laughs> how bizarre that people... It's weird, right, Ruben? It's amazing. They, it's amazing. They yeah. found you somehow across the oceans. Yeah, it's great. It's probably some backpacker who's really from like San Francisco or something, but I think it's great. Uh, and in case you missed it, I've announced the dates for my wilderness quests in 2017. What do you think? You and me, 12 days in the woods, walking the path of spirit together? Get all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.